So I was very moved by the Ruach HaKodesh to speak this morning to us about what I consider to be a window of opportunity open to us right now related to the practice of the profound disciplines of Daniel. A window of opportunity, what is it? A favorable opportunity for doing something at a very specific period of time which must be seized upon right away if it's not to be missed. From the time we started studying the book of Daniel, something which I sensed in my spirit and have since confirmed with Howard was inspired by the Ruach HaKodesh, to this very moment, such a window of opportunity has appeared for us. It's epitomized in Shabbat Shuvah, which is itself a window of opportunity between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to turn or return to the Lord. Shuvah, the very first word in Hosea 14.2 from today's Haftarah portion, involves a turning away from a wrong direction back toward the Lord our God. Let me demonstrate this by turning around and walking in the opposite direction. It is not to be walking this way and to apologize and then to be forgiven and continue to walk in this way. Shuvah, to repent, is to turn around and to walk in the opposite direction back toward the Lord. If we truly want to respond to the rich liturgy and challenging sermons of this season, let me suggest that a real opportunity exists for us to turn from any underrepresentation and misrepresentation of God and his kingship and from inadequate practice of the profound disciplines of Daniel. Regarding the practice of the disciplines in particular and anticipating al-het for the sin on Yom Kippur, let me emphatically say, for the sin we have sinned before you by the deliberate or mistaken neglect of the profound disciplines of Daniel, forgive us, and may your strength be magnified now. The opportunity that I'm speaking about this Shabbat is the opportunity for us to go to the next level, to scale the next height. The next height of what? Height of engagement of God in covenant love relationship. Height of what it means to be in Messiah and walk in the Spirit. Height of our practice of engaging God in prayer. Height of our practice of engaging God in the Word. Height of our vision and participation in the kingship of God in its inaugural form in Yeshua. Height of our witness, our representation, our manifestation of God's kingship in its inaugural form in Yeshua to the Jewish community and the lost world in which we live. Let us not be those who come and sing, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that we may walk in his paths and the Torah shall go forth from Sion without actually having a profound foretaste of what it means to come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. The most powerful word for this profound foretaste of which I am speaking is prolepsis, which the Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary defines as the representation or assumption of a future act or development as presently existing or accomplished. And because that's so clear, we can say amen, go home, have the oneg now, yes? No. My simpler poetic definition of prolepsis is a present profound foretaste of a promised 
profounder full taste. We are to have a present profound foretaste of Mount Zion now and a present profound representing of it to the Jewish community and our lost world now, even as we anticipate the coming of the fullness of the reign of God and Messiah on Mount Zion in the future. To inculcate this thought into the fabric of our being, let us hear the words of Psalm 125.1 afresh. A song of ascents, that is, a song of going up to Jerusalem. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Are you struck by the use of this word prolepsis and foretaste here? Let us also be struck by the use of the word profound here. By profound, I mean having very great height, extending far beyond the low and superficial, marked by deeply realized intensity or passion in one's living. And I am not talking about being so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. I'm talking about being so heavenly-connected that we are of maximal earthly good, like Daniel was in his time. Have you been struck by all the attention being focused on such things and all the sermons of late? Have you been struck by all the things we've been hearing from the book of Daniel? Have you been struck by how from the time Daniel was a teenager, he was able to be forcibly removed from his home in Jerusalem, taken to the astounding world empire of Babylon to learn its literature and language, and serve in its king's court, all the while risking his life by profoundly remaining in the way of the Lord? Now let me ask a very important question. Do you relate to Daniel? Or do you think he's an extraordinary biblical character and we're just regular people so we could never be anything like Daniel? Or worse yet, do we not realize we're living in our own 21st century Babylon and we need its Daniels and for you sisters, Daniela's? Let me suggest that among many other things, Daniel practiced four profound disciplines that we have the ability to practice even more profoundly than him. Unless we think negatively of the use of the word disciplines, let me define a spiritual discipline as a profound, positive spiritual practice that produces profound, transformative results in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. Daniel was profoundly equipped and ready to be used in God's history, among other things, by one, how profoundly he was in the heights of the covenant love relationship with God expressed in the first two verses of the Shema. Number two, how profoundly he practiced prayer. Number three, how profoundly he engaged the scriptures. And number four, how profoundly he appropriated the spirit of God before it was even poured out. Pagan kings said of him, It seems that there's a spirit of the gods in him. We only have time for the first two this morning because the longer sermon was two hours. Here I wish to remind us that many weeks ago, we were encouraged to read Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. While I still encourage us to do that, more importantly, I encourage us to climb Mount Zion to new heights of practice of these four disciplines while the window of opportunity is open wide. That said, let me emphasize that in his book, 
Willard addresses the very problem of underrepresentation and misrepresentation of God, Messiah, and the kingship of God that our congregational leader has been diligently addressing with us. Willard strongly contends that the problem is primarily due to not taking human transformation as seriously as do revolutionary movements and not arranging our whole lives around what we're supposed to be the normal daily disciplines of life in God. Now here I wish to emphasize that for all this talk of profundity, these disciplines are for normal everyday people like us so that we may live profound lives unto God. Here I also wish to emphasize that we're capable of practicing these four disciplines more profoundly than Daniel because the promised new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 has been inaugurated. Messiah Yeshua came and inaugurated the kingship of God as the long-promised permanent Davidic king. And we have been marked by the Ruach HaKodesh of promise as a guarantee of our inheritance as God's own possession on the coming day of full redemption. Yeshua paid the way for us to be co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected, and co-reigning with him in a foretaste of the world to come, the Olam Haba. This is not a theological fiction. It's a powerful reality for daily walking and living in newness of life that we risk underrepresenting and thereby making a mockery of the all-effectual life, death, resurrection, and reigning of Yeshua HaMashiach. Finally, know that these disciplines are not intended for a once-in-a-while practice. They're intended for routine daily practice. Moreover, if we fail to profoundly practice these disciplines, to produce profound living, growing into them year after year like a child continues to grow year after year into an adult, then we will remain as infants because we will have only lived year one over and over again. Profound discipline number one is to love the Lord our God with the whole of our heart and with the whole of our being and with the whole of our capacity. The other profound disciplines of Daniel issued forth from this ultimate discipline. Do we realize that biblical marriage between a man and a woman is the model for covenant love relationship with God? If yes, how awesome is it then that in last week's Haftarah portion, we were taken to Isaiah 61.10, this is 63.9. Here's an excerpt to make my point. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride, adorns herself with her jewels. You will no longer be called abandoned, and your land will no longer be called desolate. Indeed, you'll be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married to him. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons shall marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. 
the ultimate profound positive practice that produces profound transformative results is covenant love exemplified in a marriage. Please indulge me as I use my own for a moment. Marguerite and I have a profound, not perfect marriage. Every day I wake up, here are the first two things I do. I look up and I recite Modeani. I give thanks before you, living and eternal King, for you have restored my nefesh in me in compassion. Great is your faithfulness or covenant loyalty. That's starting each day in the reality of the kingship of God. Then I look to my right and I see she's still there after 38 years. And I take delight and thank God for being granted another day to love my wife with the whole of my heart and with the whole of my being, with the whole of my capacity, which is exactly like covenant relationship with the God of Israel. That's starting each day in the reality of the covenant love relationship with God and spouse. And in the reality of the Isaiah passage we just read, we take delight in each other all day, every day, with the whole of our heart, with the whole of our being, with the whole of our capacity, to the extent humanly possible, so that every day, month, and year, the marriage goes to another height. We didn't repeat year 138 times. We got 38 years higher. After morning prayer, Marguerite and I can't even be in the same room for scripture reading or we totally interrupt each other with all the wondrous things we're seeing in the scripture. That's no exaggeration. All throughout the day, we stay in communication via phone, text, and email, and make every effort to assist each other to live in the reality of the kingship of God in everything we do. We face the sufficient trouble of everyday life in the 21st century by pushing the envelope of marriage, extending the limits of what seems possible, and in like manner, covenant relationship with God. Our top marital theme song, which we apply to our covenant relationship with God, is more today than yesterday by the spiral staircase. Every day's a new day in love with you. With each day comes a new way of loving you. I love you more today than yesterday, but only half as much as tomorrow. Not a singer, eh? Isn't this what marriage is all about? Isn't this what the Shema is all about? Daniel maximized the reality of the Shema, and yet the Ruach HaKodesh had not been poured out in his time. How much more should we be able to maximize the reality of the Shema, the reality of covenant love relationship in marriage, the reality of covenant love relationship with the living and eternal King? Profound discipline number two is prayer. And so focused that God put me on it, I could not do the rest of the disciplines. Prayer is probably the most underpracticed discipline in the world, and yet it was meant to be the most profoundly practiced. How's your prayer life? Yes, I have come that you might be challenged, and that you might be challenged more abundantly. If you get anything out of this message, get this. How real God is and the kingship of God is to us in the nitty-gritty of our 24-7 everyday life is directly proportional to how profound our prayer life is. Not to pray is like not to talk with or spend time with my wife. To pray infrequently would be like talking infrequently or spending time infrequently with my wife. What kind of marriage would that be? 
In 2014, some things happened in our life. We discovered inadequacies in our prayer life. We were not prayed up. We were not ready for the changes in the 21st century. So we turned Shuvah and pushed the envelope, extending the limits of what seemed possible, and entered into an even more profound practice of daily prayer. And this year, as Messianic Gentiles no less, we've experienced further profound transformation from our study of Jewish daily prayer. The liturgy is chock full of scripture and other profound statements connected to real life that make the richest connection between God and his people, between the wondrous realities in the heavens and what is happening and needs to happen on earth. The content of Jewish liturgical prayer, including the entire book of Psalms, helps us to be so heavenly connected that we are of maximal earthly good. As Nasan Sherman in his wondrous essay, Prayer, a Timeless Need, rightly declares, prayer is a clarifying, refining process of discovering what one is, what one should be, and how to achieve the transformation. We must have a profound prayer life in order to experience profound transformation and pass it on to the next generation. The next generation does not need our gimmicky innovation. If we were to connect them to covenant relationship with God and a profound prayer life, they'd be giving the next sermons. So we ask ourselves a very important question on Shabbat Shuvah. How do you start your day? Let me suggest that it's one of the most important questions we can ask because of a universal principle that is ever so true. The beginning determines the end. The end depends on the beginning. If there was ever a time and place to turn or return in our practice, may it be now in the way that we start our day. Modei on me has revolutionized the start of our day, our practice of daily prayer, and the outcome of our day. I give thanks before you, living and eternal King, for you have restored my nefesh within me in compassion. Great is your covenant loyalty. This prayer is offered up while one's head is still on the pillow in the bed. According to a paraphrased version of the Arch Scroll Sadur note on Modeani, one is to wake up with gratitude to God and a lion-like resolve to serve the living and eternal king. How's your shakarit? How's your morning prayer discipline? To start our day in this way is to start our day in the reality of the living and eternal king. In the reality of the kingship of God in the heavens, it's to start our day making the connection between the invisible heavens and what's happening on the painfully visible earth. Morning prayer then continues with many blessings, which acknowledge God as king of the universe, express commitment for his will to be done in the lives of God's people that day. After appropriate blessings, passages of scripture are read. Psalms 30 and 67 are prayed, as well as Psalms 145 through 150, all designed to awaken our relationship with God this day. The benefit of praying these psalms alone every morning is beyond profound. Morning prayer then continues with the declaration of the Shema, 
which reinforces that yod heh vav heh is the one and only God and that we'll love him with all of our heart, being, and capacity. The recitation of the, sh of the Shema is indeed a daily covenant renewal declaration. Morning prayer then continues with the comprehensive series of blessings of the Amidah. Morning prayer then continues with the reading of scripture, penitential prayers, tachanun, and select songs of the day. This is no one-minute devotional. What can we learn from it? I live in the same country as you. I know our jobs are very demanding, and I know that the culture can suck us into the vortex of its fast-paced busyness, shortened, shortened, shortened everything, and sometimes even its endless distractions. Like Daniel, we must be countercultural. We must find a way to overcome the one-minute approach to the, the disciplines. We cannot send God a three-word text and expend to be profoundly, expect to be profoundly transformed, though that could happen. In the face of an edict from King Darius that was clearly against the way of the Lord, the book of Daniel emphasizes that Daniel continued to get down on his knees three times a day and to pray and give thanks before his God, as was his habit. Daniel's practice of prayer was so profound that God granted him a vision of how things ultimately are in the heavens. Such a vision informed by prayer is precisely what enabled Daniel to speak boldly about the ultimate sovereignty of God over all human empires. What did he see? I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let me emphasize that in part, it was Daniel's profound practice of prayer that opened his eyes to see what's going on in the heavens, that the messianic kingship will eventually come down, and that all the great and boastful human empires will eventually be displaced by the permanent kingship of God and Messiah. In the meantime, it was Daniel's job to witness to, represent, and manifest the kingship of God in the world empire of his time. I think it's beyond incredible that the book of Daniel then became a full-fledged writing of apocalyptic prophecy known as an apocalypse. The word apocalypse means to uncover that which is hidden from our view. The function of an apocalypse is to uncover the eyes of the ones who hear or read it to the ultimate realities of God and his kingship in the heavens precisely so that they can persevere and respond to the here and now from that newly revealed heavenly perspective. An apocalypse like the books of Daniel and Revelation is only needed by those who have lost sight of God's kingship in the heavens because of the perceived success of ungodly human empires on the earth. So how is our seeing on Shabbat Shuvah, do we feel like we're still in need of an apocalyptic adjustment in our perspective so that we might see things from God's ultimate point of view in the heavens? 
let me suggest that a powerful solution to the problem of losing sight of what's going on in God's invisible kingship in the heavens in everyday life is to have a profound prayer life. This includes starting our day in a modeani manner and also considering how we might benefit from a return to the three times a day discipline of Jewish liturgical prayer. Besides all the spontaneous prayer of all kinds that we can participate in anytime it's desired or necessary in any given day. Like recently when I lost my cell phone and said, God, would it be too much to ask today to help me locate my cell phone? And immediately I found my cell phone. Or how about when our kids aren't where they're supposed to be? And literally I go before God after be focusing on teaching on the kingship of God that day, I come home and say to my wife, I am not satisfied with where our children are in seeing this reality and living it out on earth. And my wife says, don't send the kids an email. Don't call them. Don't text them. Don't Facebook them. And I thought, what can I do? Pray. So I did. And this is how I prayed. God, I am not satisfied with where my children are in the kingship of God and Messiah and how it's being lived out. I can't do anything. You need to move. God moved. God moved in profound ways, first in my daughter's household, then in my son's household. It included my daughter-in-law, not, not the son, the daughter-in-law, calling my wife and saying, can we start having breakfast on a regular basis? Can you name some books about the godly messianic wife? Can we start praying together? And then telling us that in the car, she's teaching granddaughter Aiden how to pray. I'm talking about that kind of prayer life and those kind of answered prayers. I'm talking about when you're in the pressures of the Fortune 500 company and it's weighing on you. I'm talking about laying down on the carpet and praying to God to do business so you can survive your 1,800 employees and the pressures to meet the bottom line results while you're trying to protect patient safety and quality. So besides all that spontaneous prayer, Prayer is both a structured and spontaneous discipline. And the ultimate model for us is Yeshua and what many refer to as Tefillat Ha'adon, the Lord's Prayer. You find the longer version of it in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And in a writing known as the Didache, the Gentiles are instructed by the 12 to pray this prayer, pattern of prayer, three times a day presumably following the long-term, three-times-a-day prayer practice of the Jewish people. If you examine it closely, you'll find strong connections to the Kaddish and Amidah, especially in the second, third, and fourth line as I have it produced here. You'll also find that the doxology at the end, which only appears in some ancient manuscripts, seems to have been inspired by the doxology, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. I urge you to read that doxology today. Knock your socks off. Avinu, our Father, the one in the heavens, let your name be sanctified, let your kingship come, let your will be done. As in heaven, also on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. And don't lead us into testing but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingship and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A few observations are warranted here, as is a five-hour MSI mini course. Neither the Kaddish 
the Amidah, nor Yeshua's prayer, suits a complacent person satisfied with the treasures of this age. This is a prayer for the desperate. That is, those to whom Yeshua promises the blessings of the kingship in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, who recognize what? This world is not as it should be, and only God can set things straight. You see the source of that comment. The prayer, like all Jewish prayer, is prayed in the plural because God called a people. And among the Jewish people, even all individual need is subsumed in the general need of the people of God. It addresses God as Father, indicating, at the very least, wholehearted dependence upon God, parental closeness, and a sense of childlike obedience. Thus, as liturgical a prayer as it is, it's also a simple cry of childlike trust in God as Father. It addresses God as the one in the heavens. The latest study of heaven and earth language in the Gospel of Matthew clearly reveals that when heavens is used in the plural in Matthew, it is almost always emphasizing the invisible realm of God's kingship that we're passionately seeking to bring to earth. It's three wondrous, let your petitions, let your name be sanctified, let your kingship come, let your will be done, in reference to God, precede and inform the three us petitions in reference to the people of God. Let your name be sanctified, which we often say in our liturgy, ultimately points to the earnest desire for the day when God's name alone will be shown to be holy, meaning unique among all names. This is very clear in Zechariah 14.9, which we also say often, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one, a remarkable interpretive uh, translation by the New American Standard Team. However, it also points to the earnest desire for the name not to be made profane that is common in daily life now. In fact, sanctifying God's name and thus his reputation, Kiddush Hashem, was the most characteristic feature of Jewish ethics. To ensure that we do not profane the Lord's name, a connection should be made here to Leviticus 19.2. Leo Beck, the 20th century German rabbi and scholar, rightly said in his Essence of Judaism, all education was directed to this end. To be different was the law of existence. You shall be different, for I, the Lord your God, am different. He was translating Leviticus 19.2, which we usually hear translated as, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. His translation's very good. And my own is, you shall be unique, for I, the Lord your God, am unique. We must be unique in the ways that the Lord our God and his Messiah are unique. And that's been exegeted to us over the last several sermons. Leo Beck goes on to explain, the Jew was the great nonconformist, the great dissenter of history. It was the purpose of his existence. That's because he belongs to the Lord and demonstrates the way of the Lord to every nation. We Gentiles, who are now joined to this people in Messiah, are also to be those who live this alternative lifestyle, this countercultural way of life, 
in which we sanctify, make unique his name, and be as unique as he is unique. Let your kingship come, which we often say in our liturgy, refers to the earnest desire for the coming fullness of the kingship of God and Messiah in the Olam Haba. Yeshua is indeed the Messiah who inaugurated the invisible kingship of God in the heavens as the promised permanent Davidic king. He came first as a suffering servant to live and die on behalf of our sins as a permanent sacrifice. He was then resurrected and ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father, thereby enacting the inaugural form of the kingship of God. Having done his work as a sacrificial lamb, the answer to let your kingship come will see him return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lest you think this sermon is impractical, let me suggest it is the most practical. And let me have Heschel support me. It would be impossible to overemphasize the need to have an earnest desire for the coming fullness of the kingship of God. Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Insecurity of Freedom, Essays on Human Existence. The climax of our hopes is the establishment of the kingship of God and a passion for its realization must permeate all our thoughts. This is precisely why we encourage starting our day with Modeani, which addresses God as living and eternal king. This is precisely why we encourage, pray, encourage praying Tefilat Ha'adon three times a day. It keeps our eyes focused on the kingship of God and Messiah. It keeps our eyes focused on the Alam Haba. It produces a profound four taste way of life in which we eagerly anticipate the coming fullness of the kingship of God while we provide the world with a rich foretaste of it now in all the ways that we witness to it, represent it, and manifest it in our culture, cultural living in a world empire like Daniel. Earnestly praying, let your kingship come. When thought about in light of Matthew 11:12, 12, which you have to look up, in fact, might be best understood like one understands this saying in the rabbinic writing, Sifre Deuteronomy 49.2.1. Those who passionately pursue Torah, it's as if they ascended to heaven to bring it down. Thus we would say, those who passionately pursue the kingship of God and Messiah, you'd think Yeshua said, seek first his kingship. It's as if they ascended to heaven to bring it down. Do we pray the words, let your kingship come this passionately three times a day? Should we? How would we then live? Let your will be done, which we often also say in some way in the liturgy, refers to the earnest desire for everything to be set back to the way God intended all things to be. I will be your God, you will be my people. As Keener notes, the Kaddish mentions God's will in the original creation, but Yeshua's kingship prayer more strongly indicates that when the kingship of God comes in its fullness, the world will be restored to its perfect purpose for which he formed it in the beginning. Let your will be done keeps our eyes focused on the coming restoration of God's will while we provide the world with a rich foretaste of it now in all the ways we witness to it, represent it, manifest it. How about on the job in the Fortune 500 world? 
It's not a boast, it's a testimony of living this way in the Fortune 500 world. And then on the leaving day, saying goodbye to that world, having senior executives in a Fortune 500 company say to you, you were our shepherd. What? I was your sacrificial lamb. I was taking care of safety, security, quality. And you were trying to milk that penny out of the turnip. You just about killed me. No, you are our shepherd. What are the chances? What are the chances that 10 years later, after I hadn't seen any of those executives for 10 years, I bump into the CFO, the chief financial officer, at my daughter's wedding at an obscure beach on Cape Cod. He's there. I hear him making a reservation for dinner. I say to my wife, that's, that's Walt Broaddus. I turn around, it's Walt Broaddus. I say, Walt, he goes, Henry. I said, Walt, this is my wife of 25 years. He said, young lady, this is the most ethical man I ever worked with. Is that not a practical result of Father the one in the heavens living out the kingship of God, manifesting it on earth? That's what I'm fighting for among us this morning. As in heaven, also on earth. When these two terms are coupled like this in Matthew, Pennington has shown it often highlights the contrast between what's going on in the heavens, what's going on on the earth, and how desperately we desire to see that resolved. That's quite obvious here. What do we see going on in the heavens when we pray Psalm 103, 19 through 21? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Can you see heaven and earth in dynamic tension now, coming together later? The three us petitions primarily relate to daily sustenance that comes from God while his people have to live in a world empire. The chief analogy being God's provision of manna to Israel in the wilderness. Bread for the difficult journey before getting the chance to enter the promised land. Forgiveness of every kind of debt from monetary to sin, but in direct proportion to one's obedience in forgiving others. And three, ultimate deliverance from difficult tests or protection against temptations to falling away. Joachim Jeremiah pointed us to a Talmudic passage, Babylonian Talmud, Barakot 60b, that seems to be a similar prayer. Lead my foot not into the power of sin, and bring me not into the power of iniquity, and not into the power of temptation, and not into the power of anything shameful. The point is, most probably, don't let us succumb to the test or the temptation. Testing and temptation is inevitable, but enduring and passing is not. Life is hard. Pray hard. The doxology reinforces the focus on the everlasting nature of the kingship of God. In closing, may I suggest that if we truly return to the profound practice of the disciplines of Daniel, we will properly witness to, represent, manifest the coming fullness of the kingship of God and Messiah in the nitty-gritty of our everyday 24-7 lives. Children, young people, adults, single people, 
Married people, parents, grandparents, let us turn, enter new heights of covenant love relationship with God and Messiah. New heights of prayer, new heights of appropriation of the Ruach HaKodesh that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And new heights of reading and study of Scripture in order to attain to profound new heights of living, witness, representation, manifestation of the kingship of God and Messiah in the nitty-gritty of everyday life in this world empire. Most importantly, let us pray. And let no one outpray us. Avinu Malchenu, our Father, our King. We do not take this season of repentance and forgiveness lightly. We have not come to these holidays out of mere tradition. We came with the desire to fill them up with maximal meaning. So we lay our lives before you today. We ask you to do a transformative work in us. And wherever we are in our practice, we ask you to take us to the new height and grant us the richest foretaste of what is coming in the full taste. And grant that we would not underrepresent or misrepresent you in all the ways that our congregational leader suggested is possible. Grant that we would bear the greatest witness and that many would come to see you in your invisible kingship now and join us even as we anticipate your coming fullness. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.